Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Trying out a new slogan. Hit us up on Twitter and let us know what you think. At There It Is Pod. You can also do the same on Facebook, at There It Is Pod on both. Very excited to be here. Fun new episode for you today. Um... And a lot of stuff going on in comedy, I feel like. There's a lot of stuff coming out. Um, I just found out that the Spider-Man movie is considered a comedy. I didn't really know that. I just kind of consider all superhero movies to be superhero movies. But, hey, that's a comedy coming out. I think there are new episodes of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee that is either already out or coming out. But I'm very excited about it because Eddie Murphy is going to be on. And uh, girlfriend of the show, Justina, and I just saw John Early live at the Bell House, and it was awesome. He's so, so funny. And we actually saw him randomly a couple years ago, like right before he blew up, but when he was probably already filmed the things that made him blow up. (laughs) But um, we saw him, and I just remember thinking, oh, I should see if I could get him on the podcast. And then immediately after that, he blew up, and I just thought, well... I doubt I can have him on. Do <laughs> uh, you know the importance of a good night's sleep? Now, if I had sponsors, I'd talk about Casper, but I don't have a sponsor. I'm just tired because I had five hours of sleep last night, and you might be able to tell it by the way I sound. So disregard anything. I'm just tired. <laughs> I had to bring the podcast to you, though, sweet babies. And today's episode is great. We have writer, director, and producer of The Truth Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. I've been on an episode, and I love it so much. Jonathan Mitchell created this podcast, and we have a really great talk about his career and his work and, and of course, the truth. So let's get right to it. Here's my chat with Jonathan Mitchell. I think this is going to be... The rare time that the guest sounds better than my audio. You know, like your audio is so good. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it, we'll, see, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Um, you've, I've come to find you because of the Truth Podcast, which I uh, found out about and fell in love with a couple of years ago. But, of course, you've been doing work for a while. You've been doing work before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a while. Yeah. Um, and you studied music composition in college. Was that something that once you graduated, you continued to pursue or did you go kind of right into the audio world? So, OK, so I started I studied music composition and and as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student. And um, I um, see my my dad was a musician and growing when I was growing up, he uh, wrote a lot of music. He got a lot of um, choral anthems published. He played organ in a church, and he was a choir director. And um, and and so I grew up around that. I took piano lessons my whole life. I was in the choir, 
and um, was in a lot of bands when I was in high school. I started writing a lot of songs, and um, I really liked making music and writing music particularly. Um, and my sister ahead of me, my, my, my older sister, had been a music major um, at the same college where I went at University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it was like, um, it's like the normal thing to do was to go and study music for me. <laughs> like that was like, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. In fact, it was kind of the, the, the norm, it was just the normal route. It was, it was, it was just a, a normal thing. And so I, um, I think what I really wanted was to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And, um, I didn't really realize that at the time, but, um, I was always drawn to film books. Whenever I'd go into a music or into a bookstore, I'd always go to the film section. Whenever I go to a library, I'd always go to the film section. I'd always, like, I always found myself just always interested in whatever I could read about film. And so when I was in college, I, um, I, I saw this movie, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. It was released when I was a sophomore in college. And it was, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but it was around the I beginning it, of the. But I didn't see it. Yeah, it was the around the beginning of the big sort of indie film boom of the '90s. It was released in '89, but um, it was it was really a very, um, as I understand it, it was a very influential film. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that it was very inexpensive to make, but it reached a very very broad audience. It was very very good film, um, very. Um, sort of lean you know it had a very small cast and um i really loved it and i loved everything about it and it spoke to me as a 19 year old and i um there was a book about its the making of it that was a journal that steven soderbergh had kept while he was making the film and it had um the um the shooting script that he used and it was the first time i'd ever seen a real film screenplay and it was really like it 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 was um, very strange to me that, or not strange, but surprising that there were things in the script that weren't in the movie, you know, like scenes had gotten cut, dialogue had changed. It was my first sort of exposure to sort of the process of it and what actually went into making movies. And I became very, very interested in it. And I, I wrote a little screenplay for a short film and all kinds of stuff. I was just so interested in it. But um, I went to this this really big school and it it was not a film school i mean it wasn't the kind of place you'd go to to study film mm-hmm. as a maker and um and so the class there were like very few classes about that had to do with filmmaking i could never get into them because a lot of people wanted to take them and i wasn't a film student and so <laughs> I, t- I did take a lot of film theory classes but um around the sort of Concurrently with this, I was um, sort of struggling with the music side of things. I was I, I was interested in it, but tr- having a hard time finding my place. And um, I was thinking about changing my major. I was actually thinking about going into graphic design at one point. Hmm. And um, I said I, I held out because I knew that the the next semester I was going to take a recording studio class. Like it actually was an experimental electronic music class, where I'd get to start using the recording studios in the composition department. And there's lots of interesting equipment, a lot of tape machines, like a lot of real to real tape machines and analog synthesizers. And um, it was just 
there's a lot uh, of uh, very appealing things about it. And um, I started taking it and um, I just fell in love with recordings immediately after I started taking that class. I, I, I we, at, it, this was before, this was 1990, 91. Let's see, it would have been, it would have been fall of 1990. And um, I, uh, I just loved editing tape. The first assignment we had editing tape, um, it was, you know, it was reel to reel tape. It was quarter inch. It was splicing. I really liked building like sounds out of physical objects, you know, like it was, it was like sculpture. Um, it was, it was like a, you're building this, you're objectifying sound in a way, you know, you were turning it into, uh, an object and, um, and having that kind of control over time, I think, was really appealing to me. And I really liked to edit speech in particular. I, I really liked processing speech and manipulating it and, and, and sort of exploring the continuum of when speech could be intelligible and not intelligible and um, and what could be done with that musically. And um, I just... And and also music concrete, which is taking sounds of the the natural world and manipulating them into musical material. So like slowing things down and reversing them and putting them them through all kinds of effects. Um, that was all stuff that I was really drawn to in the studio more so than say like synthesize like synthesizer types of things I, um, with oscillators and and VCAs. I was much more interested in starting with a a natural sound and and then as my basis and so as a way of generating material i started interviewing my friends because i wanted to get talking on tape and um and i was just drawn to the the storytelling aspects of what i was doing a lot and 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 very interested in what could be done with that and at the same time i really wanted to make a film and and i realized well if i if if I didn't need pictures, I could make a film today. <laughs> mm, yeah, and and um, whereas you know, in this this is the days before, you know, you like now you can make a film on your phone, but you couldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, like you had to have access to like a Super Eight camera at the very least, or some kind of video camera. Yeah, otherwise it was and, just and, home video stuff. Yeah, and I didn't even have home video stuff. I didn't have anything, and so I um I didn't. It wasn't. Like I wanted to take a class, you know, where I could do like a 16 millimeter film. That would have been my dream, but it wasn't. A, it wasn't easy. I would. I didn't have the money to do it to just go out and rent the equipment. But but I mean I mean if I if I hadn't had access to the recording studio, maybe I would have. But I did have access to the recording studio, and so I started thinking about what I could do with that. And the more I thought of it, the thought about it, the more excited I got by the idea, because. Um, uh, I was learning about all kinds of um, experimental um, music techniques of processing sounds and, and, and compositional ideas, uh, like the music of uh, Steve Reich and Robert Ashley and um, people like that who were using the voice and um, telling stories in really interesting ways. And I, I was thinking about how to apply that to to narrative work. And um, And so when I went to grad school... I made my thesis project a, um, a an audio drama that I wrote all the music for and I, I recorded all the sounds for and um, directed the actors and did all that kind of stuff. And 
And so I, at that point, I mean, I was really, that's basically what I'm doing today. And I was, I was interested in it in grad school. And when I got out of school, I needed a job and I got, um, a job editing corporate audio tapes. Um, and, um, the, the company I worked for, um, did a lot of radio and they got some money to do a, um, uh, a public radio show about technology. And this is a, this is around the time when, um, this American life was just starting. And, um, and that was like a real sensation, you know, it was, it was very popular show and, um, and it was very fun to listen to. And it was, um, it showed, it was very creative and in in terms of how it used the medium particularly. And it showed that you could do, you could, you could explore radio as an art form and find an audience for that. And, um, and that audience was listening to public radio. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I thought, well, maybe I can, maybe I can find a way to make this weird experimental audio drama stuff happen on public radio. You know, (laughs) that may have been a little bit naive, but I, 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 (laughs) I, I think I realized that too at the time, but I, um, I started making a lot of documentary stuff because that was a lot more like there's the market for that was a little bit more (laughs) receptive. Mm -hmm. And, and I worked on a lot of different shows, uh, over, over 10 or 15 years and until I started the truth. That's a very interesting way into doing audio dramas because, or, or, you know, an interest in making it, not necessarily even just into doing it because, um, you know, my, my love of the truth comes from my mom giving my brother and me a, like a little, some, something she got in the mail from subscribing to a magazine. It was old time radio. It was just like a pack of cassettes Uh And it had the shadow, and it had the Green Hornet, and uh, Arch Obler's Lights Out, everybody. And we loved listening to them. And Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) that's how I got into that. But you came into this very, I think, original uh, and and interesting way because for you it was, well, I want to make this, but it would be a lot easier if I did it in an audio form. I could do that immediately. That's really, really interesting. I mean... Had you listened to much old time radio or anything that was uh, like what you started creating? Um, I wasn't so much interested in old time radio, but I, um, when I was a kid, I had one of my favorite record albums was called The Story of Star Wars. Mm. This was in 1977. It was when the movie was released, and this was before VCRs were really common or even around. And um, and and so if you wanted to relive the movie in your own, in your home, you could go out and buy this record album and you could listen to the movie. <laughs> wow. And, and it was like, it was basically, you know, the dialogue and the sound effects and the music from the movie, but with some narration and it was like a bridge. So it would fit on a record album. Um, but um, I loved that. I listened to it over and over and over again. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I think I listened to it before I even saw the movie. In fact, I know I saw I listened to it before I saw the movie. So, like my my first uh, experience of Star Wars was through listening to it. Wow, that's and incredibly then, unique. <laughs> yeah, it's unusual. Yeah, I mean, yeah. well, it's just like it's really cool. I think. I mean, it's one of the biggest things of all time when it comes to modern 
entertainment and you had this this different experience with it that you know a lot of people don't have i mean a lot of people who even listen to that you know maybe saw the movie first so it was interesting right. that your exposure to this hu- huge thing was listening to an audio production of it yeah yeah and it was the same sound for the movie it wasn't like later on a few years ago a few years later they um npr produced a um an audio drama of star wars mm-hmm. and um i remember because I had been listening to the record so much, I was disappointed with the audio drama version of it. Mm. I I felt like it didn't have the um, the sort of sense of realness to it. The sense of like it felt like it was recorded in a recording studio, mm. and and the movie was happening in outer space. I mean, it was <laughs> it was pretty literally there. It took me there, um, and so I, I guess I I, I missed that from I, I wanted to make audio drama that that sounded more like the, the record yeah i yeah i mean and you nail that i mean that's one of the things i want to talk to you about is how you are able to make things sound like like uh, what i was in uh was so thankful to be a, a part of was in a an airport and listening to it it does feel like being in an airport and you, you are recording it in a studio but it listening to it it doesn't sound like people in a studio how does one really accomplish that it seems like it's a very nuanced sort of approach to really deliver that yeah um well first you have to have the strong desire to make that happen (laughs) you know you have to have like the um idea in your head okay this is what i want to hear and then it's about knowing how to manipulate sound and, and how to record it so i record things in a way that doesn't it's 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 actually the way i record things is is more geared towards not making things impossible mm-hmm. <laughs> you know rather than rather than it literally being the the place where i'm going to be i want to record it in a way that's not going to keep me from making it sound like it is right right and so um so sometimes that's about mic placement and um usually it's about mic placement and what kinds of mics i use and um what kinds of ambiences i choose uh i do a lot of subtle things with foley mm-hmm. um i i i try to like when i'm creating an uh, creating an ambiance for a story oftentimes my um my technique is to um start with what i remember that place sounding like okay so i'm i'm as opposed to going out and literally recording an airport I think about, well, in my imagination, what does an airport sound like? And then I look for sounds that, that do that, you know, so that I'm tapping into my memories more than the, the literal reality. Oh, wow. And I think that that creates a more vivid picture, you know, it's more experience or, you know, it's, 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 it's about waking these like be, be people relating to it. I want people to relate to the sounds that they're hearing. You know, that is an uh, interesting approach because that you start with what you remember of it because it is all in our mind. You know, when we're listening to an episode, it's something that's in our head, so it has to match reality, but it also sort of has to connect us to what we remember it sounds like. Right. And and these places, I mean, we listen to films and TV shows all the time, and these places are depicted a lot. And so a lot of what we were, what our minds have come to expect places to sound like aren't actually literally what they sound like. They're more related to how they're depicted in films and television. And so 
it's sort of taking that into account too. Mm-hmm. You've had to have learned a lot of things over the years, uh, other unique and interesting tricks of the trade like that. I mean, you want to, you're, you're part of a team that won a Peabody for the American Icons Moby Dick uh, program that you did, which is awesome. Who else in the industry of, of producing and directing audio is out there? Who are your peers? Or are um, you, because I don't know them. <laughs> I don't know who else is out there doing what you're doing. Well, there's a number of different, like in the, in the past five years, it's multiplied, you know, like a, like a, you know, it's, it, it maybe five years ago, it was a few rabbits in the corner and now it's a room full of rabbits. Right. <laughs> <I see>. um, <laughs> but it's, um, uh, the people who I think I consider my, it depends on, um, what you're, which parts of it you, you're drawn to, but, um, there's, um, um, Lauren Shippen who makes the bright sessions and she just has a new show now on the luminary network. Um, she's developed quite a following. She has a sound designer. She works with named Misha, Misha Stanton. Um, there's the night Vale guys who started their show around the same time I started the truth mm-hmm. and, um, they have, have developed this, the success of their show into a whole network. So they, they're, they have a, a lot of shows now that they, they just distribute. Um, then there's people like, um, well, Caitlin Prest, who we just put her, um, project up on a, our website or our, our podcast. Mm-hmm. She did a, a six episode series for the CBC last year that, um, she had a podcast called the heart, um, for a long time that was on the same network as, as me, uh, Radiotopia. And they, they did a lot of these types of pieces. She did one called movies in your head that, um, I thought was just brilliant. And, um, and so the project that she did last year, the shadows was sort of keying off of that and, and doing similar things, but on a much larger scale. And her stuff is, I'm just so uh, envious of, of how, how intimate she's able to get things to sound and mm. how um, she uses her mic technique is so, like she, she she's very inventive and lo-fi, you know. She does a lot of um, sort of, um, fa- like she'll record things and then repurpose the recordings in a fictional context. But there'll be things like like she conveys closeness by like, rubbing against the mic you know like i don't know if you can hear that yeah um um she'll 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 use her mic technique is very intimate she'll um she'll get uh, like if she's doing she does and she does a lot of pieces like most a lot of her work explores intimacy like her show the heart was all about sexuality and Mm -hmm. and um and so she she does like things like recording under the covers of a bed with her partner or um or um you know she there's just a lot and and she does a lot of things with with music that i think are really inventive and and um and and like she's one of the people who i think is um who understands the medium in a more sophisticated way she comes from radio and so she's really she's really approaching it like a radio maker like she's doing fiction like a radio maker. whereas a lot of people are are seeing it as being like um a poor man's film it's it's like a painter having different brush techniques to get across certain different moods in their work i mean it's it is very well thought out yeah and um another person who i think is really good 
who's has been working on the um the wolverine series for stitcher his name is brendan baker he used to do sound design for uh, love and radio but um he's a really really brilliant sound designer and um he does that series is all in 3d audio mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people um paul bay does a series called black tapes i'm i'm uh, yeah i i i i i'm I wish I could think of more names off the top of my head. Oh, right. I mean, I, and I put you on the spot, but um, there are plenty of people out there that you appreciate that you didn't mention, and I'm sure they know. Yeah, um, for sure. Th- yeah. <laughs> it's always, there's always going to be one or two people left on, or, or more. But it's so, it's such an interesting form to me because of how, like you were saying, the intimacy that can come out of something. I mean, there is you can feel like someone's just whispering in your ear and it's really something all the different things that people can get from and i i picked up on some of that when i got to record with you because you did have different mic techniques that you were exploring and um you know then listening back to it i mean of course i was there when we recorded it but when i was listening to it i just thought wow i didn't I, you know, this is a completely different experience. <laughs> I didn't know that this was going to come from it, you know? Like, it was just hard to have seen that, I guess, when I was just in the studio and in your home studio trying to record, because I was thinking about the acting part of it. But when you're listening to it, it, it just takes on a different sort of feel. It's a different animal, almost. Yeah. When you started out doing The Truth, you were approached by Ed Herbstman to do something correct words in that no I, I i approached him oh okay and so so the idea was to start something regular at that point yeah so i um i had been working on um developing at first the truth was going to be our radio show mm-hmm. so i was i was trying to and this is like around 2010 or so and um so this is before podcasts were sort of widely considered a, a viable platform. I right. Mean, there were like really... two people, maybe three people doing real well in it. Right. Like Mark Marin and Adam Carolla and people like that. But um and then the stuff other stuff, most stuff that was successful as a podcast actually was a broadcast that was just repurposing their their broadcast as a podcast. Like This American Life or Radio Lab. Mm-hmm. But um so um so we so we were thinking about trying, trying to start a radio show that would be um, a, a place for fiction to be heard on public radio because there wasn't really a dedicated fiction show. And um, it was a whole area of, um, of writing that, um, that wasn't being explored. And we thought you could do a lot with, there was like, a, it seemed like an unlimited potential, you know? And, um, and so we were trying to get a, a distributor to make it happen. Um, we had, you know, a, a person at, at, at uh, the distributor was very, his name is Peter Clowney. was very, very helpful. He was very into our idea. He did a lot of work trying to help us get the show happening. But ultimately it, it was very, diff- it was just was a hard sell. And, um, and I think at the end of the day, podcasting is much I mean, podcasting was about to happen anyway, and it turned out it was a much better fit for what we wanted to do. But, um, but as as part of trying to make that happen, we um, 
we've produced a pilot, like a little piece, a pilot piece that was Moon Graffiti, mm-hmm. and which is on our podcast. And um, and then I got. Um, we thought, well, if if I if we get a piece on This American Life, maybe that'll help us make this radio show happen, mm-hmm. because Ira has so much clout in public radio, and um, it it would it would just sort of give a sort of an, an endorsement that might be useful. And so we, I, I, I pitched him a bunch of ideas and he, he finally said one to, he finally said yes to one. And so I'd, I'd worked with Ed Herbstman on the moon graffiti piece. And I asked him to work on this, this American life piece. So we worked on it for a long time and it was taking a long time to do, um, because I was sort of new to writing and trying to figure out, how to end it <laughs> and and um while we were working on it i would you know i told him what i wanted to do and and about how how i wanted to practice i wanted to just produce more pieces i wanted like a group of of people that i could work with like maybe a group of improvisers because i was really interested in um combining improvisation with the recording studio i thought those two things together um, complemented each other uh, uh, because you know improv like I go to a lot of I was taking improv classes I took improv classes at UCB like in around 2007 or 2006 and um, and then I took um, a class at Magnet Theater as well after I met Ed but um, I, um, I whenever I go to improv shows I always felt like oh I could put this on the radio all I need to do is edit it <laughs> you know it just needs a good edit and then I could I could use it. It's so like improv can be rambly, um, but but recordings on the other hand, if you like rehearse something and and you perform it in front of a microphone, it oftentimes has a a very um, sort of staid, like lifeless quality to it. And and so I I thought that well, improv has a lot of life, but is is, is inarticulate. Mm-hmm. And recordings are very articulate, but can not have life it's easy um and so how do i and so combining those might take me someplace interesting and so um and so i i wanted to get a group of improvisers who are also like really good writers or interested in writing and who whose improv was not like comedically oriented necessarily um but more sort of rooted in uh, more naturalism and so I got this group together. I threw Ed's help, and um, we started just working together, trying to come up with pieces. I, I I wanted to do a piece in a month, just because this other piece had been taking so long. I wanted to see how if we could get a good story done in that period of time, and um, I knew that the This American Life piece was going to air, some you know in the next few months, and so I wanted a place to send people. Um, and I created a podcast feed just as a, as a sort of a way to s- capture the potential of that broadcast. And I started putting these pieces I was making with this group of improvisers on the, on the feed, along with a lot of other things that I had made over the years, like the Moon Graffiti piece. And I had made a piece called Eat Cake, which was a first exploration, early exploration of combining improvisation in the recording studio and then I'd made another a number of other small pieces but um, by the time that this American Life piece aired 
um, I, we had maybe seven episodes, six or seven episodes, I think. And um, whereas I had been putting them up every two weeks. And at that point, you know, if we got like 500 downloads in a day, I would have thought, wow, where are all these people coming from? You know, <laughs> like, wh- how, how is, how am I getting f- 500 people? And then the This American Life piece airs and all of a sudden I was getting like 20, 30,000 downloads a day. Wow. And um, I had an audience, you know. Yeah. And um, the trick, I mean, that's not quite enough to monetize it, but it's enough to, it's, it's, a, it's pretty encouraging. Mm-hmm. And, and um, a lot of good opportunities came out of that. And, um, and it, it, it sort of slowly over the next year or so dawned on me that, um, well, maybe the radio show isn't the way to go. Maybe this actually, I could make this happen in a, as a podcast. Maybe I don't need the network. And, um, and so I, I just kept going with it and um, tried to figure out how to work with the performers and, and writers and improvisers most effectively. And that, was, that involved a lot of trial and error. And sometimes um, it was very frustrating. And um, I just learned a lot about how to run a show and how to work with writers and what kinds of writers I wanted to work with and what was what kinds of pieces I wanted to make and how to actually make all that stuff happen was a long, long learning process for me. And, um, I don't know, about a, a year and a half or so after starting the podcast, I had a fundraiser and I was, cause I'd seen one of my colleagues, uh, Roman Mars had had a really successful fundraiser on a Kickstarter. And, um, and so, um, and he was sort of in a similar position as me where he, he wanted to do this show, but the public radio sort of establishment was not making it easy. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, he was getting a lot of pushback. And so he made his thing happen as a podcast. And I think he was, I'm, I'm, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I know that Jesse Thorne was all, had already been successful at doing this and, and, um, that he was a very inspiring person for a lot of us and um and so um uh roman um had been talking with prx about starting a network of podcasts and at, right at the tail end of my fundraiser he i he called me we talked on the phone and he said i want to start this network do you want to be a part of it and um and we got together, uh, a whole group of, pod- of podcasters got together about a month and a half, two months later, we all met and um, decided on the name Radiotopia. Now that's my home. Radiotopia is my network. And so that, that made it possible for it to become my full-time job because all of a sudden I had um, uh, people who were working on my behalf to sell ads. Yeah. I worked at a place that had an ad in an episode and I was heading to that job listening to the truth and heard that (laughs) heard that ad and was like well this is weird this has never happened before (laughs) listen to hear an ad randomly what was the ad uh it was simple contacts I don't work there now Uh but um Uh when I I heard that I was like well all right (laughs) another new experience um right well that's that's really great and um you know, I'm I'm glad that 
that it exists. There's been such great talent on there. I mean, a lot of a lot of people that um, people in New York know, but people who've been on like um, uh, Peter Gross or or Scott Adsit that people in other places, you know, like just people know. I mean, they're both recognizable guys. Um, lots of great talent though has, has come through there. Has there been a? I mean, since you had been working on things, projects like this before the truth started, has there been much of a learning curve since you've started to now? And if so, yeah, no, I, I learn all kinds of stuff all the time. I mean, writing what for, when I started, the, I had the most to learn about writing, mm-hmm. um, fiction stories, and and like screenplay types of writing, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't. I like I, that was like my my first couple years of doing this. I I was really just became obsessed with with understanding story structure and and what all the elements of that were and why why certain stories worked and others didn't and um, you know, constantly questioning assumptions and and lessons I was being taught and things I I thought were true but you know other people like no one agrees on how to write a story (laughs) you know i mean there's certain things that you can find in a lot of books but like there's a lot of people who say don't do that you know so i i don't it's it can be kind of like it can be a little bit disorienting at first i think because there's a lot of people who tell you not to pay attention to anything and at first you sort of have to pay attention to something because um you have to kind of have some basis for for rejecting this information and so and so i um i spent a lot of time thinking about that stuff and trying to get better at it and another thing i i took me that took me a long time is knowing how to really effectively find the kinds of writers who whose tastes aligned with mine i guess Mm -hmm. and who wanted to make the same kinds of stories that i wanted to make Mm -hmm. and um that was a that was a major challenge of the show. Like ongoing challenge was how to find new writers or how to find, um, how to find scripts, how to develop scripts in a way that like, I have a lot of ideas about how to use the medium, but there's not a lot of people who are right actively writing for the medium. And so how do I work with a writer who's never written for audio before and help them explore what's possible in, in maybe a more sophisticated way. And, um, and that's an ongoing challenge, right? Because you you kind of want to give people their f- creative freedom, but at the same time, I want there to be consistency to the tone of the show. So, oh, for sure, um, I think that is important. Honestly, I mean, that's and I think that's one thing a lot of people don't necessarily understand about a lot of things that are made. You know, that there there is someone who is in charge who is trying to put things together, and they have certain sensibilities and it's totally fair for them to want to make things within their sensibilities. You know, we're, we're coming towards the end of our time here. And there are a couple of things that I want to talk to you about. So maybe they're both things that we can sort of create together and just talk them out, uh, create, so to speak. One is in regards to building a studio because I'm, I'm still tweaking my studio. I've, um, I, there's a brief moment where we were on video Skype and you may have seen behind me this, I had this blanket draped down. It's like a, I, I, I was doing some research online about trying to improve the sound in a studio. And one thing w- that was suggested was to just get a moving blanket because they're kind of mm-hmm. thick and they're not uh-huh. expensive. And that 
improved a lot of uh, the sound quality in, in my little cubby here in my apartment, but I still have a little bit of an echo, and I, I know there's the foam that you can get, but are there any specific tweaks that someone can make or things they can get? Like, what sort of approach did you take when putting together your home studio? Well, my, my home studio doesn't really have sound isolation or anything like that. Um, I um, The most important thing is to understand where the reflections are coming from and um, and also it's the type it, the type of microphone you use and the mic placement is is probably more important than than the sort of sound dampening elements in the studio so um, you you want you want to use a you know a microphone that doesn't you don't want to use an omnidirectional microphone if you want a really clean sound or an, an, you don't want any reverb you don't you know you want to use something with a a pattern that is pretty shallow and um, right in front of the microphone, like a, like a hypercardioid or something like that. Okay. And then, I mean, it's, it's really about minimizing reflections. That's, that's the whole idea behind getting a, a deader sound. Yeah. I, it, in my old apartment in South Carolina, I just, I had a little bit of a walk-in closet, but it was sort of small. And uh, that's where I did recording in, and it sounded good. It did have that dead sound because there are clothes everywhere, and it's there's a carpet below, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. There wasn't a lot of blank wall to bounce off of. Yeah. But, I mean, you can record anywhere, you know? Like, like a lot of NPR reporters I know um, record underneath a blanket. You know, I've heard of that. I've, I've heard that um, a lot of people do or, use, just yeah. get under a blanket. Or in a closet. Um, they also sell these things that you can put around a microphone that make it so your your voice gets absorbed behind the microphone you know so it doesn't i'm bounce looking into getting one of those shields yeah um yeah. i think that'd be better than what i have because i just essentially have a box with the foam in it mm-hmm. <laughs> around it i have a blue yeti is that good for what you're talking about i don't know i don't i've never used a blue yeti i don't know i use an ikg 414 for what it's worth okay good advice and the other thing that I wanted to chat about was if someone was wanting to sort of take on an endeavor like you have with even starting at the beginning, you know, when someone's like, well, I want to make a movie, but it would take a little longer. Maybe I can just do this. So if somebody were to say go into the, let's say, audio world just to make it more directly related to what you do. What sort of advice would you give them when it comes to them starting out? I would say um, it's it's really easy to, I mean, the tools are very available. It's like there's nothing really stopping you from doing it, so I would just do it. Yeah. There's not a lot of obstacles to making audio drama. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's like, it's, it's it's nice in that way, you know? There's no one, you don't need a lot of like lights and costumes and, and equipment you can just sort of like, uh, you, you don't need a lot of people even. You can probably do something pretty good with just two people. Like one, get a friend and you can do something really, even one person can do a lot. You know, you can do a lot of voices or something. If you do voices, you could you could do that. I mean, I would say have an idea. Like think, of, like what I like to do is think about what I, like fantasize. Like if the, what, what do I exi- wish existed in the world? Mm-hmm. What's not there already? that would be really cool <laughs> and i try to and that's how i arrived at what i do you know like i wanted to hear hear this 
these audio stories because I didn't hear anyone doing it. And I thought I could hear in my head what, what I wished existed. And I looked for it. And, and this was before the internet, so it wasn't easy to find stuff. But I would go and buy a lot of CDs of, like, I'd, I'd spend a lot of time in the spoken word section of a CD store, you know, just trying to find this kind of stuff. And it was, it was like, really hard to find. And no one was doing it the way that I wanted to hear it. And so that was inspiring to me. That made me really want to do it all the more, you know. Mm-hmm. I think the, the best inspiration it doesn't always have to work this way, but a lot of times the best inspiration is um, like w- wishing that something existed that doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. like um, a lot of people, like a lot of people do audio drama, for example, who are from the LGBT community. And um, because there's not a lot of representation in mainstream media. And so they're using the medium to explore subject matters that they couldn't, and they wish were being explored that they couldn't any other way or wouldn't have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like things like that. Like what, what do you, when you look around and you, you see the world around you, what's missing and uh, try to make that. Interesting. I, I like that advice a lot. What doesn't exist that you really wish did. Yeah. That's not exactly how you worded it, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's it though. Yeah. And what would you say is maybe the hardest part of putting together the truth? Is it getting the foley or the you know the the sounds, the, the background no, that, noise? That, that's all pretty. I mean, it, that's work, but it's not hard. The hardest part is um, staying on schedule, and um, like it's a conveyor belt. <laughs> like <laughs> it, it's it's just like you every two weeks we have to make a new episode and it's like uh it's sort of this insatiable thing and um and as soon as you finish something you you're just back to back to square one <laughs> yeah and that and um and you know finding these ideas that and keeping the quality up mm. um keeping quality consistent is very challenging um maintaining the audience main like um, growing the audience is always a real hard thing to understand how to how that works exactly. You know why why certain shows have really big audiences and and others don't is is sometimes a mystery, and and um, and and being able to just sustain it, the just the 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 process the the act of trying to sustain the show is the hardest part, you know. Um, because it, it doesn't stop <laughs> and sometimes you just want to rest and yeah and if you if it's like owning a restaurant that's how I talk about it a lot to people I would it's like you can you can have a restaurant and you can be making the same thing and then maybe your customers go away and you're like well I'm nothing changed why why are they not there anymore or or you can make make a restaurant and if you don't put it in the lo- right location no one shows up or a lot of times you have regular customers, but then so much of your business is about people who are just passing through. And, um, how do you, how do you find those people? And, uh, anyway, it's, it's a lot to me. It's like that. It's like sort of volatile and, um, it, you're trying to just make the best food you can, but, but that's sometimes that's not enough, you know, right. You, people have to know about it and talk about it and they have to keep doing that. And that's, that's hard to, 
hard to make happen. Yeah. Well, there it is. Jonathan, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Sure, yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm, it's really nice to talk to you about this stuff. And yeah. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. We were so glad to have Jonathan on to talk about all of his work and this amazing art form. You may remember that previous guest and good friend of the show, Davey Gardner, is the associate producer of The Truth Podcast. He has written a bunch of episodes. You should check the show out if you've not listened to The Truth. There are plenty of great episodes. Previous guest, Joe Firestone, did Other Fran. I highly suggest you check out Body Genius, an amazing five-part series they did recently. There will be a new episode next week, but you have last week's episode to check out. And you can check me out in a small role from last December's episode, Unremarkables. And there are links in bio to check out more about the podcast. Well, we hope we inspired you this week, but we'll be back next week to do it again. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 